Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. Can you believe it? It is already Friday. The older I get, the faster time flies. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything and everything. All you have to do is provide the phone call. 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Everything else is hands-free. Good weekend for us here at Calvary Chapel. I would appreciate you and the audience being in prayer for us. I just am telling Paula yesterday, I just had this sense that God was really doing something through these next two studies. Um, Tonight, I'm going to be teaching, finishing chapter one of the book of Revelation. This is our second study in Revelation. And then on Sunday, I'm going to be starting 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And as we go through 12, 13, and 14, where Paul is talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the abuse and the lack of love in the distribution or the practical application of those gifts. Um, I've had this sense that in these two books, God is really going to do something here at Calvary Chapel. And I always love that feeling because it's it's um, an opportunity to expect God to move. I'm coming to church tonight expecting God to do something. So tonight we finish Revelation chapter 1, the appearance of Jesus. Write the things that are that you see. And, of course, John sees Jesus in all of his glory. Uh, so that's this weekend where you go to church. I don't know what's happening, but I pray Jesus is going to be exalted, that you're going to be blessed, and you're going to go there with the idea that you're serving others. You're not going there to be served, but you're going there to serve others. Well, let's get to questions that have been sent in, and we'll wait your phone calls. Wendy asks, um, if Christians are to view Genesis chapters 1 through 11 as an allegory, are they denying the divinity of Christ? Wendy, um, I, I, I don't know that they're denying the divinity of Christ. What they're doing is disqualifying Christ from being divine. Now, I hope that makes sense. Um, um, I don't know anybody who says Genesis 1 through 11 is not literal, who would also say, but, well, we don't believe Jesus was God. It's not that at all. Here's the problem. Jesus affirmed the first 11 chapters of Genesis as literal, actual, historical. And if we say all of a sudden that that's not true, then what we're doing is we're saying Jesus isn't telling the truth and 
Of course, the consequences of Jesus not telling the truth are enormous. Uh, we are all lost in our sins. We have no hope for the future. So, Wendy, I think if Christians view Genesis uh, 1 through 11 allegorically, or if they view it uh, for nothing more than symbolism, or God is telling some sort of a story to make a point, um, then they are throwing out the divinity of Jesus, because Jesus, as I said, affirms these 11 chapters. You know, one of the problems, Wendy, and I get asked about this all the time, people will say, well, would well, you really believe Adam and Eve were the first two? What about the people who lived millions of years ago? There were no people before Adam and Eve. And if they were, Jesus lies to us. And if Jesus lies to us, again, we're not saved because we don't have any means of being saved. Our Jesus then is not perfect or sinless and wouldn't qualify to be a substitute, a sacrifice uh, for our holy God. So, um, Wendy, I, th this is a battleground that I think we've got to take our stand. Um, I don't think most of the people who have been persuaded by so-called science, I call it science fiction, they've been persuaded by this so-called science that, uh, well, the evidence is overwhelming, we've been around for billions of years, or there was a big bang, or, or we just evolved from lower life forms. Uh, I don't think they make the connection intellectually between the things that Jesus said. In the beginning, God created them, Adam and Eve. And if we deny that, then we're losing the value that Jesus has for us as our Savior. So, Wendy, I hope that makes sense. Thank you for the question very, very much. Here's an interesting question from Jesse. Uh, this could be a she. He or she says, how should believers view maintaining their physical health? Is it a sin when people get fat? Um, Jesse, I don't think we need to be harsh. It's not a sin when somebody's fat. Before I got saved, I was obese. So, um, I wasn't aware that I was lazy and I worked a bunch and I ate all wrong, all those kind of things. Um, but I think you've asked a really important question. Paul, writing to Timothy, says that bodily exercise profiteth little, but spiritual training has great value. And the idea is there isn't that one is good, the other is completely bad. The idea is, relatively speaking, spiritual discipline or spiritual training is more important. But physically, if we think about this practically, um, I can't serve God if I'm dead. I can't serve God if I'm confined to a bed. Now, I mean, I can serve God, but not the way he's called me to. I can pray, and certainly I would hopefully do those things. But the idea here is that we've got to be healthy enough to serve. And if we're not healthy enough, we've got to do what we can. Now, there's some people who can't help their physical condition. But those of us who can, the overwhelming majority, it's our responsibility to be healthy enough that we can go out and share Jesus. We've got work to do. We've been assigned a commission from the Lord himself. And if we're so unhealthy that we can't do that, or if we've let our bodies get to a place where um, people are going to look at us and, and instead of seeing Christ in us, instead of seeing joy, they're going to see these sad people uh, I think it makes being physically as healthy as we possibly can really, really important. There's a lot of reasons, Jesse, for people getting overweight. I think lack of exercise, terrible diet, and, and, and laziness are overwhelmingly the majority reasons. But there are some people who can't do anything about it. A DNA um, has a lot to do with it. Uh, genes, genetics has a lot to do with it. But here's what I want to say. God doesn't care how we look, but he wants us to be healthy enough to fulfill our calling. That's all. Again, this isn't aesthetics that matters. This is. This is just our ability to be able to serve the Lord. And, um, you know, Jesse, I use it sometimes as a as a witnessing opportunity today. Um, as I think most of you know, we've talked about it, Paul and I, we've moved into a new neighborhood. Now, my old neighbors didn't even pay any attention. You know, I've been running up and down those streets for so many years. Uh, but now i got new neighbors. And today, uh, for some reason, there was a bunch of the neighbors out in the street either walking or doing yard work or doing things. 
And so I got to meet new people today. And every once in a while, somebody will say, well, I see you out here. Why are you running so hard? And my answer is, well, I serve Jesus and I got to stay healthy. And that gives me an opportunity then to witness. So I think believers should view their physical health um, as though it were important to the Lord because it is. I think it is clear that the Bible says it's more important to be spiritually uh, in training, always to be ready. But I also think that for the most part, we really need to pay attention to our health. Um, I turned 70 um, last month, and um, I don't think God's done with me. So I don't want to disqualify myself simply because I can't do what Jesus wants me to do. Good question, Jesse. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, here is a call. Cindy on line one. Cindy, good to hear from you. Thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I'm halfway happy about something, and it's halfway happy that we're starting <laughs> to get that miserable hot weather that you and Mama Paula enjoy so much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, Cindy, I said to somebody on the, when, one of my neighbors, I just was talking about him this morning, and I said, it's finally feeling like June. And they gave me that look like, it's hot. And I said, I love it. So I know what you're talking about. Oh, it's okay, because I've got in the little Rolodex in my brain, I still have that miserable Arctic freeze that we had. So I can oh. remember that when it's really hot. <laughs> Cindy, you know, you know and... Uh, I just I just started to warm up from that. I mean, I, I told Paula uh, two, three weeks ago, I said, Paula, I haven't been warm since that horrible, horrible time of snow and freezing and stuff. I'm starting to warm up now, so I feel good. Well, the only thing I didn't like was the loss of electricity and the phone and the TV and the radio and, you know, all that. that was, and Internet, that's the only thing I didn't care if I didn't mind the... <laughs> A little snow bunny. I don't mind the cold so much. But I did have a couple things, and it's one of them is, is the well that was Jacob's well, is that still there, or does anybody know where it is? And the second thing is, I just got something that it just really burnt me to a crisp when I read it, and it was in John, and it's about the chief priests. It's uh, John... Um, Oh, gee, 19, chapter 19, verse 15, and, and the, the chief priest said, we have no king but Caesar. And that just got me so mad when I read that. So when, when they were taking Christ um, to, to be crucified and, and interrogated and everything, it just burnt me to a crisp that they had the nerve to say that. And that's all it was. It wasn't really a question or anything other than about the well. So anyways, mm. I'll get off the and listen to your response, and it's Happy Friday again. Bye. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you. You know, uh, for Cindy, anybody else, uh, uh, we have no king but Caesar uh, is going to, I'm not going to say that tonight, but, but the idea is tonight we meet the one who's really in control. In this particular case, you know, Pilate was trying to weasel out of being responsible for Jesus' death. He knew he was innocent. Pilate three times pronounced him with his own lips, pronounced Jesus innocent. And then even after that, his wife comes out and says, have nothing to do with this righteous man. I've suffered many things in a dream. So see, Pilate was really trying to give Jesus the benefit of the doubt because he knew he was innocent. He didn't want to execute him. But the Jews, let his blood be on our head, they said. And of course, that's in part what happened. But when they shouted at Pilate, he said, what should I do? Um, shall I crucify your king? The sign that Pilate wrote was king of the Jews. And um, they shouted out because what they wanted Jesus to be is executed for treason. We have no king but Caesar. And the, the hypocrisy is maddening. They hated Caesar. They hated anything to do with him. And uh, sadly, um, that's a bunch of people who are without excuse. Now, I have no doubt, Cindy, and this is just me speculating a little bit, but I have no doubt whatsoever 
that some of those people that cried out, we have no king but, Sa- but Caesar, or, or later cried out, give us Barabbas, crucify him. Uh, I have no doubt that it was some of those very people who were saved on the first day of the church, some 50 days after Jesus' death and, and resurrection. Um, I think when Peter pointed the finger at him and said, you murdered God, I think they thought, uh-oh, I'm busted. What can I do? And the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, pricked them to their heart that's in the depths of their soul. And they cried out, brothers, what shall we do? And um, again, I have no doubt that it was some of them, these very people that said, uh, we have no king but Caesar, who, who became believers. That's why Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Good question. Regarding uh, the, the well in Samaria, uh, yeah, you can visit that site. As you can imagine, it's a tourist attraction now. Uh, the problem, of course, I think, uh, and I don't know the geography as well as I ought to uh, there, but I think that's in the West Bank. And if it's in the West Bank, then there's going to be all kinds of difficulties getting over there. But but it was for a very long time considered one of the holy places to visit uh, in Israel, um, along with Rachel's tomb and some others. So, um, yeah, Cindy, it's still there and it can be found and tourists often do. Thank you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions, and we'd love to have them. Crystal asks, according to Acts 16.31, will my family be saved because I got saved? Crystal, no, that's not what Acts 16.31 means. I've heard it misused that way. Um, This is the Philippian jailer. Um, What must I do to be saved? And and uh, it's it's uh, he was about to lose his life. Literally, this man was rescued by the gospel because he was about to kill himself because he, he would have thought that his prisoners, uh, Silas and Paul, he, he would have thought that they would have escaped when they had the opportunity. But Paul said, don't do this. We're here. And um, listening to Paul and Silas sing hymns in the middle of being put in the stocks and having been abused and beaten, um, um, and now to know that, that their actions saved his life. Um, what must I do to be saved? Believe and repent and you and your family will be saved. Now we know that every individual has to make their own choice. But culturally speaking, in that time, Crystal, um, it was the male in the household that decided what the family believed. So in this particular case, I'm sure there was no problem. That whole family was saved. Uh, but it was because this man was completely changed when he went home. He would tell the story about how he was about to kill himself because Rome would have killed him, the the, the Roman guard, and uh, because his prisoners escaped. But um, uh, he was spared. And his family would have seen the change. It would have seen the joy and the gratitude. The problem, of course, is... We can't apply that one situation to everybody here who gets saved. And I know in times past when I've been asked this question, people were naming it and claiming this. Um, but the reality is, is that every single person has to make their own decision. Nobody can act on behalf of another. I wish it were true, but it's not true. Now, here's what can happen, Crystal. Every one of us can be sanctified in a set-apart sense. Um, Paula sanctified me. She set me apart through her prayers uh, when I wasn't saved. And, and of course, I got saved. Um, so we can pray. We can ask the Lord to save. But we can't assume that just because I'm a believer, everybody in my house is a believer. Thank you, Crystal, for the question. Excuse me for my coughing. Here is a question from Reggie. If someone believes Jesus is the Son of God, but not God, is that a salvation issue? Reggie, it absolutely is. Only God can forgive sins. Only God. And if Jesus isn't God, then he can't offer forgiveness of sins. Jesus, when he met the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler greeted him with good teacher, now, Jews understood, especially Jews like this rich young ruler, educated Jews, understood that, that their religion taught that no one was good but God. 
And that's why Jesus responded and said, why do you call me good? And at that moment, the rich young ruler was accountable. And at that point, um, he walked away sad and he was lost. Um, Reggie, since only God is good, only God can forgive sins, to deny that Jesus is God is a salvation issue because it attacks the very nature of who he is. If Jesus isn't God and only God is good, then Jesus isn't holy. He's not perfect. He's not an acceptable sacrifice. But most of the time, when you're talking to cults, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, um, they'll use the same language. Oh, yes, I'm saved by, by the blood of Jesus. He is the Son of God who died for my sins. Um, but they deny that he's God. They believe, Mormons do, that he's the spirit brother of Lucifer, sort of the good brother uh, as opposed to the bad brother, Lucifer. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that, that Jesus is Michael the archangel. And because they believe that, they're, they're, they're demoting Jesus. And yes, it is absolutely a salvation issue unless you believe that Jesus is very God of very God. That God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, who was the Son of God, but also God the Son, unless you believe that that's who he is, you do not have a Jesus that's capable of saving. And when we get to that place, Jesse, or Reggie, I'm sorry, uh, what we've got there is is cultish activity. So, yes, it is a salvation issue and essential of the historic Christian faith. Here's a sad question. This is anonymous. My daughter was baptized a couple of years ago, but just came out as bisexual. Did she lose her salvation? Anonymous, what what happened? She never... I want to be careful. I almost said she never was saved. Um, if she really met Jesus, she is always going to be saved. But if she really met Jesus, she would know that what she's doing is sin. And the Bible is very clear. People that live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So typically what happens is we, especially when they're younger, they'll get baptized. They'll go to a, a church camp and, and, and make a profession of faith. Um, but but it's not a real profession, a genuine profession of faith. And they just go on living their lives. Here's the thing that we have to remember. If you meet Jesus, and I mean this is, as serious as it can be, if you meet Jesus, you change. She could have been a bisexual um, before, but once she meets Jesus, she can't continue that lifestyle. She could have been the worst kid in the world. She meets Jesus, that's going to change. Why? Because the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, and with the Spirit of God living in us, well, then we're going to be more like Jesus who sent the Holy Spirit to us. So most of the time, remember this, most of the time the people that proclaim to be saved never really were. Because our lives must change, that change is obvious to people. And because it's obvious, everybody knows who she is. Now, if she backslides, let's just say she falls away from the Lord and, and uh, um, starts doing things that she's not supposed to do. It doesn't mean that God's done with her, certainly. If she really met Jesus, he's going to chase her. He's going to make it impossible for her to continue in this lifestyle of sin. The problem is that when you continue in this lifestyle of sin, your heart gets harder and harder. And uh, in situations like this, um, the truth is we probably won't know if they were ever really saved until she either repents or dies in that condition. So she didn't lose her salvation because you can't lose what was given to you freely and guaranteed by Jesus. But too many of us, we have an experience. We get goosebumps. We get baptized. And we sort of view Jesus as an eternal life insurance policy. Well, we can't do that, Anonymous, because Jesus, you remember, said, I haven't lost any that you've given me. Jesus still hasn't lost any that were really his. We might rebel against him, 
But he always brings us back if we really belong to him because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. So the best thing you can do, let me suggest two things. You've got to really witness to your daughter about Jesus Christ. You've got to witness to her. Jesus will not accept this kind of behavior. And I don't want to think about heaven without you. You need to repent. Now that may fracture the relationship you have. But you've got to be willing to risk that in order to get your daughter in heaven. The second thing is keep praying for her. I can't imagine the pain. I can't imagine how difficult this is. But Anonymous, this is something, believe me, you're not going through it alone in this day and age where kids are being encouraged to this aberrant behavior. It makes them cool. It, it, it gets them attention. We've got to be the men and the women who take a stand for righteousness. we got to be the ones who if you have questions are about constant the Bible, in you prayer. So I don't know what happened there, but he had a little bird. Uh, but, but Anonymous, that's uh, just pray. That's what you can do. You stand with and for Jesus and make sure that your daughter wow, what uh, a wild knows who you stand. We're having some technical difficulties. I think we're kind of at the end of the first half hour of our program. Um, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. It's Friday. Stuff like this sometimes happens. This is the word to stand on for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Hope we got everything fixed. I'm Pastor Ron, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Hey, I told you this was going to be a good day, not just because of the uh, Bible study tonight and the Bible study on the gifts of the Spirit that is starting on uh, Sunday, um, but because my producer just told me that today is National German Chocolate Cake Day, and this is a call to Rosalinda, people in our church know who she is, she makes the best German chocolate cake in the world, so people need to start texting her and tell her to get busy. We don't have much time left in this day. Here is an anonymous question from our mobile app that just came in. It says, what do you prefer to officiate more, a wedding or a funeral, and why? Wow, that's a tough question. Um, I really, really, really enjoy weddings when I know the people really, really well. Now, it doesn't mean I don't enjoy the weddings of the people that I don't know. But when, when it's people that I've known for a long time and we've been through pre-marriage counseling and I've seen what God is doing in their lives... A wedding is like officiating at a, at a corporate partnership, and I just know that God is going to do neat things, and that's fun. So weddings are fun, and, and, and I enjoy doing them. However, having said that, and please don't think I'm being morose, but I really enjoy funerals. Funerals are a, for a believer. Now, they're not so great for unbelievers or people that we're not sure of. But when when a believer uh, is being buried, when we're doing the funeral service, um, it's, it's, it's like standing up on a podium at the Olympics and getting the gold medal. They're realizing the goal of their salvation. And I like to make sure that the people who are hurting, those of us who, who the, the loved one left, I like to make sure that they understand exactly what's happening. I particularly, again, this doesn't mean I'm, I'm weird, but I particularly like open casket funerals. I like that because uh, I'll watch people go by the casket and they'll, you can almost see the look on their face, oh, well, that doesn't look like them and, and, and that kind of comments. And sometimes people say, well, well, I hope they're resting and those kind of things. And I can take those comments and turn them into a, a message at a funeral. 
I like to tell people that, that, that the, the person you walked by and saw that carcass, you know that he or she's not there. It's easy to look at him and say, well, well they're gone. That, that's just an empty house. And it really gives me an opportunity to, uh, to declare the gospel in a really powerful way. So I guess, Anonymous, the answer to your question is um, um, if, if the funeral is a believer, I really like that. Even though I'm hurting typically and other people are hurting, um, I, I really feel like I'm doing a service to a lot of people who are there, people that are hurting, people that need hope. Um, and so I think I like that the best. But but a wedding, especially when it's people I know, I absolutely love that as well. Um, I get to watch. Um, it's like I've got a front row seat to so many people's lives. And it's absolutely thrilling for me to do it. Thank you for the question. Roberta says, can you help me understand Jesus' promise to overcomers in Revelation 2 and 3? Who are these overcomers? Are they Christians? Um, Roberta, um, I'm going to not this, not tonight, but a week from tonight, I'm going to begin um, teaching in the, the letters to the seven churches with Ephesus, of course. Uh, and their overcomers promises made to all of the churches. And uh, the overcomers promises are those who take Jesus's criticism or his uh, solution to their issues uh, when they when they take his counsel, when they repent and do what what he's told them to do, then he makes these overcomers promises to them. In other words, you may have messed up, but it's not too late. Now, we also need to remember that the man who wrote Revelation, uh, the Apostle John, uh, he tells us in First John chapter five, verse five, what an overcomer is. An overcomer is who is that that overcomes? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Christ or that Jesus is the Son of God. Those are the overcomers. We're overcomers in this world. But but in the seven letters to the seven churches, there are specific issues that uh, go on in, in each of the churches. And I'm going to go into great detail about that beginning next week. But uh, the overcomer's promises are just solutions. Jesus is the greatest problem solver in the whole world. He knows what to do with the problem. All we have to do is take his counsel, and it changes everything. So, Roberta, the promises are simply you can walk in the fullness of God's blessing. Just take my counsel, and, uh, and things will change. Good question. I like that very, very much. Here is a question from Susan called in. Should we listen to our husbands even when they tell us we should get an abortion? A man I was with even brought in a priest to tell me that I should get an abortion. I did it and regret it. Will I have to answer for it in heaven? Um, Susan, um, please listen closely. I'm going to encourage you. Um, let me just straightforwardly say, you should never obey or submit to any person who tells you to do something that is contrary to what God has told you to do. So your husband telling you to get an abortion is something you should absolutely stand firm on and say, I'm not going to do it. It's wrong. Now, I realize it's too late now, but but um, you knew it was wrong. Your husband um, instinctively knows it's wrong. Uh, so the answer is No. We submit to the authority established over us until that authority contradicts the authority of God in our lives. I was telling a story in our church about Paula uh, just before I got saved. The angriest I've ever been at her was when she wouldn't tell a lie for me. Um, somebody called. I didn't want to talk to them. Um, our lives were a mess. I just said, no, I don't want to talk. I don't want to talk. Just tell them I'm not home. And Paula, as a Christian now, I knew she was a Christian and before, she'd, she'd lied to people when I told her to. But, but she said, I can't do it. And I said, why are you against me? Um, but, but see, that stand that she took is really what convinced me, or at least began the process of convincing me that, that Jesus was real and he really was in control. So, no, never listen to your husband tell you to do something ungodly. Not an ungodly sexual act, not lie, not cheat, not steal. 
Um, that's where submission stops. And the answer is simply, I submit to God, and God told me I can't do these kind of things. Now, to the priest that told you you should get an abortion, um, um, he's anathema, cursed. Uh, I, I can't imagine, you know, a Catholic church uh, with their public anti-abortion pro-life stance, and yet they know that the overwhelming majority of their their uh, um, participants, their 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 parishioners, are are Democrats, pro-abortion um, um, priests that really call people out on it, get in trouble. Uh, this priest is just anathema, cursed by God, um, and and surely not saved. He needs to get saved. Um, um, I, I can understand the pressure that you would feel doing that. Uh, I'm glad that you're honest enough to say that you regret it. Um, as to whether or not you will answer for it in heaven, it's simple. If you have repented, and it sounds like you have, then it will never be brought up. Your sins are as far from you as east is from west. So no, you will not um, have it brought up. If you confess your sins, First John chapter 1, verse 9, um, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of sins. And here's the, the salient point, and purify you from all unrighteousness. So, Susan, this is a part of your past. It's a part that you regret. Um, you've repented. Um, now move on. Now, I hope this is the best news of all. Your baby won't hold it against you in heaven either. You are headed for the most glorious reunion with your child. There won't be any ill feelings. There won't be any shame. You won't have to worry about well, I don't want to see him or I don't want to see her because of what I did. You have to worry about any of that nonsense. That's all the, the enemy. When you get to heaven, you're going to hold your baby. Now, he or she won't be a baby, but you get my point. So, repent now. It appears that you have done that. And you will be fine. But just generally, to all the women in this audience, you never submit to something that's ungodly. Your husband's authority ends right there. And let me also say this in, in, in terms of pastors. Um, if, if a pastor ever asks you your spiritual authority, uh, if a pastor ever asks you to do something ungodly, the answer has to be no. I love Jesus too much to do that. So Susan, I hope that encourages you. I hope it sets you free. Uh, Romans 8.1 uh, I don't know if you have tattoos, but if you do, you ought to get another one. It says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Tattoo that somewhere where you can look at it every day. And I promise you, uh, the enemy will have closed doors. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls. And oops, just texted in. <laughs> oh, bless your Rosalinda. Just uh, texted and said, okay, I'll bring one ASAP. So Rosalinda was listening. So thank you, Rosalinda. No pressure. It's just today is National German Chocolate Cake Day. And nobody in the nation, Rosalinda, makes German chocolate cake like you do. So God bless you. Thank you so much. I'll be waiting. 340-9585. I really didn't think she'd be listening. That's why I told people to text her. Maybe a bunch of people just, just texted her. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Clayton asks, why do modern churches consider singing to be the only form of worship in church services? Clayton, I hope most churches don't consider singing to be the only form of worship in church services. Um, when my worship pastor uh, is praying, he'll usually say, Lord, we thank you. It's so wonderful. We're free to worship you like this in public. And now as we continue worshiping in your word, we also worship in service to one another. So I don't think it's the only way. Unfortunately, Clayton, I agree with you in that it is considered the primary way that um, churches worship in music. And I am, am quick to remind people all the time that 
um, if you go through the Old Testament and look at worship, every time something died, every time worship is mentioned, something dies. That's worship when we die to ourselves. Now, uh, I'm not the biggest music fan, but I love to worship with my church. I love to look at the faces. When I come up on the stage at the end of the final song, I have a minute or so where I can look out at the audience and they're worshiping, arms raised, some with tears streaming down their throats, some with these looks of absolute joy. And, and because I know them, I worship with them. I worship because of them. Uh, when I'm in my seat and I'm watching the worship teams perform, um, because I know all of them intimately. Um, I know what they've gone through. I know what God has done. Uh, we got a lead guitar player on our primary worship team on Sundays. And, um, I mean, he's been playing lead guitar, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 years. And, you know, we picked him up out of Travis Park. And I know what God has done with him. I know the miracles in transformation. And, and, and for me, that's just pure worship. So um, worship in churches happens in the music part. It happens in the preaching part. It happens in the, the serving part. And that's what we all ought to do. Worshiping in spirit and truth includes all of those things. Evan says, you say that Christians can't be possessed by demons, but how do you explain Judas being possessed by the devil? Well, Evan, Judas was never a Christian. Jesus said he was the son of perdition from the beginning, doomed to destruction. So he was never a Christian just because he hung around with Jesus because he was one of Jesus' disciples. He never surrendered his heart. Now, Judas was more accountable than most people, certainly, because he was with Jesus or with Jesus, Jesus even gave him power to cast out demons, power to heal people. Judas was absolutely without excuse. But when the devil entered him, it was because Judas opened his heart to the devil in rebellion against Jesus Christ. So Evan Judas was never a believer at all. The son of perdition doomed to destruction from before the foundation of the world. Judas is not in heaven. And I'll say it again, Evan, Christians possessed by the Holy Spirit cannot be possessed by an unholy spirit at the same time. That's really, really bad theology. It's really uh, predominant in, in um, uh, out-of-control, uh, hyper-charismatic churches. Um, the, the deliverance ministries, all of that is just nonsense and bad teaching. Anonymous. Oh, <laughs> Anonymous, you don't go to our church. I can tell you, I can see that right away. This one says, Pastor Ron, it drives me crazy when churches regularly start their services late. What are your thoughts? Anonymous, we've been here for 26 years and we've never been one minute late. We have a countdown when the worship service begins, when the next service begins. And and uh, as soon as it hits zero, it's good morning, Calvary Chapel, and we start on time. We had one time when the power went out just for a minute at the at the very beginning when they were starting to do that. So I, I think technically we were probably late, but it, there was nothing anybody could do about it. But in 26 years, we've never started one minute late. I'm a nut for being on time because I want to respect people's time like yours. And churches that um, don't pay attention to the time. Service starts at 10. You need to be going at 10. Churches that don't do that are disrespecting their people. So I'm with you. It drives me crazy. You know, I'm uh, affiliated with a group of churches, Calvary Chapel. There's probably 1,500 of us in the world. And and uh, there's a saying that was going around, you know, sort of the more laid-back hippie days, and it kind of affected churches throughout the generations. Um, and, and the pastors say, well, you know, we are all kind of on Calvary time. And Calvary time 
by definition, is always five, eight minutes late. And, and, and it just it never made any sense to me. And I just thought it was a lack of concern and care. So I agree completely with you. Um, tonight at 7 o'clock, there will be music in our church. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Um, Susan called back. She said, thank you, Pastor. A weight has been lifted off my shoulders. Oh, Susan, thank you so much. Thank you for letting me know that I would have been praying for you all the time. Just, I, I, I know how the devil uses guilt. So, um, Jesus is going to look at you and say, well done. Well done. God bless you. I appreciate that very, very much. See, that's a considerate woman. She didn't let me worry. Here is the next question. It is from Veronica. We have a Veronica that we love very much in our church. And I know this question from her because here's the question. How much is Paul involved in the administration of your church? Uh, Veronica, not at all. Paul has a key. Actually, the key to our church. The master key is also the key to our home. So she has a key, and she can come in and do whatever she wants. But but Paul is not on staff. Uh, she doesn't get paid. Um, she she isn't in charge of anything. Um, she administers for me uh, under my authority the women's ministry. Um, but um, she has... Um, no leadership responsibilities at all relative to the administration of the church. Now, having said that, I also want you to know that Paula is the one person in my life, the closest to me of anybody. She's the only person who's ever always and only wanted the best for me. She is my partner, and I run all kinds of things by her. Um, if I'm going to or if I'm thinking about ordaining uh, a new pastor, or if I'm thinking about ordaining a new elder, um, if I, if I think God is is speaking in my heart about uh, a ministry, we're, we're we're trying to organize uh, here um, a ministry for our free restaurant that's coming up. We call it it's going to be called Unusual Kindness, uh, and and I run all of those things by her. Now I don't do that to get her permission. I do that. Um, because I wanted to pray. I want, I want to be sure that I'm hearing the Lord correctly. And when Paul agrees with me, then when, when the Lord speaks to her heart, she knows I don't want her opinion. I want her to pray about it. I want to hear what God is speaking to her heart. Um, if, if Paul is with me, there's nothing that's going to stop us. And there have been a couple of times over the years when Paula just says, you know, I'm just not hearing anything from the Lord about this now, and I'll wait. I'll wait. I want to be sure that we're able to walk together. How can two walk together unless they agree to do so? Amos 3.3 says, and Paula is the one I trust more than anybody. And if Paula says, if I say, I'm thinking about ordaining this person, and, and she would say, well, you know, I'm just not sure about this person because, um, then, then I certainly wouldn't do it at all. I just, I absolutely wouldn't do it. That would, that would just be to me. It'd be like God speaking to me, and and giving me a check in my spirit to say, let's just hold off on that for a while. Now, I don't think that's ever happened. I don't think Paul has ever told me no in something like that, or that she didn't have a a good feeling about somebody. But uh, when when I do interviews with people that were thinking about ordaining, Paul is usually there with me. So she's not involved in the administration of the church, but she's involved in every detail of my heart, Veronica. Um, but she is not a leader in the church. Um, she's Mama Paula. And uh, I think she'd tell you that she considers that the best title of all. She's got so many kids. That's Isaiah 54, um, her life chapter that the Lord has given her. Well, we're almost out of time. We've got three minutes left. Here's a question. Um, Paul says, what one thing to you is the most important in directing a church? Paul, not exactly sure what you mean by directing a church, but in terms of establishing a church, I think the most important thing is to be relentlessly biblical. To be relentlessly biblical. Everything that we have to do from the top down has to be done with the direction of the Word of God. 
We've got to be not only relentlessly biblical, but we've got to be able to, to go to the Bible and justify all the things that we're doing. And and then I would say sort of as an undercategory, then being consistent over a long period of time. You know, one of the things that people know here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio after 26 years, we're not going to do things any different than we're doing them now. We believe that the way God has asked us to establish his church is, is consistent with the model he gave for churches in Acts chapter 2. And so we're not going to change um, the consistency with which we do things. We've had people who, um, you know, get married or move away or get transferred in the military. And they, re- they return after having been gone for a long time. And they'll come back and say, Pastor Ron, nothing has changed. It felt so much like being home. And Paul, that's what we want. So I think that kind of order. The other thing is we have to be relentlessly loving. There just can't be any compromise in the area of love. And I think if you establish a church like that, then what you're going to experience is a church that's walking in the will of God and the people are going to know it. And it's going to be a a really neat place to be. So for me personally, that is the most important thing. Relentlessly biblical, um, uh, consistent, and then relentlessly loving the people that God has sent. It is an honor to uh, to pastor a church, and we're accountable. Too much is given, much more is required, Jesus said, and we want to be able to stand in front of him and, and hear him say, well done. You know, starting next week, Paul, I mentioned this, starting a week from tonight, we're going to be in the uh, seven letters to the seven churches, and um, what we want to do is make sure that Jesus is giving us the kind of counsel and we're taking it and consistently doing so. Hey, thanks for tuning in. It's been a good week on the show. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Uh, I'll be back on Monday on AM 630 The Word at 4 o'clock, Lord willing. And we'll see you then. Have a wonderful weekend serving Jesus. See you next week. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.